Before we dive into our text uh, this morning, uh, I don't know about you, but uh, just culturally, wow, what a what an evening if you follow the news at all um, with some of the tragedies going on in, in Charlottesville. Um, I just wanted to open up if you if you would join me in a word of prayer, uh, just for our, um, we were driving we're driving to church this morning in Madison. I just love the simplicity of of a child. We're going north on 291, and my daughter has the wherewithal to realize that their car is going south. She says, Dad, why are they going that way? Her assumption is that everybody should be coming to Liberty Hills, apparently, because this is the way that, way to church. And um, I just said, you know, Maddie's not everybody goes to church because they don't, not everybody knows Jesus. Not everybody believes in Jesus. And she, she said, um, they don't know him like we know. I wish we, sometimes in our adult minds, we complicate things so much. But just like my little daughter, just connect the dots that people need to know Jesus. And it makes all the difference. And when we look at our country and we look at just all these injustices across this country, and specifically in in regards to what's going on in Charlottesville, and just the hatred and bigotry and the ugliness that is that, my, my heart just breaks. And I long for a day. Let's turn over to Revelation just real quick. Can you long for this day? I just can't, I can't wait uh, to be in the presence of the Lord and experience this. Revelation 7, verse number 9. Revelation 7, verse number 9. It says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every, every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. It's a blessed hope that we have someday where we can rid ourselves of this flesh and its prejudices and its sin. And so I just wanted to open up just in a cultural context as we're looking at Christ and who he was, his life and his work. And Christ came to unite Christ came to give salvation to all people. And um, it's just opening a word of prayer as we consider preparing our hearts for worship, to receive the word, to have the mind of Christ, and to be the hands and feet of Christ in a hurting world that so desperately needs to know him. Let's pray. Father, I just want to take a few moments just to pray for our, our hurting country that is confused and broken and who is hopeless without you, I pray that we would cling to the hope that someday all the injustices that are done here in this world will be made right, or Christ, the righteous judge, will come and do that work. Even as we look in our passage this morning in John 2, that's what we are looking forward to Christ once and for all doing, to, to make right the wrongs and the injustices of our day And I pray that we would, in the meantime, be the ministers of justice, be the ministers of of right to this world. And I 
I pray that we would not turn a blind eye against these uh, injustices of our day, our generation, our world, our culture, our context, but we would lean into those uncomfortable situations and, and be willing to speak truth and love that we would be able to give Christ and hope to a hurting world that is in such desperate need of you. And so, Father, we also cling to the promise that you have not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And I pray that you would give that to the church in our setting. But, Father, we pray specifically for the church in Charlottesville that you would equip it, that you would mobilize it, that you would give it strength and courage to stand for right and that you would give it opportunities to show forth the love of Jesus and the good news that Jesus saves. And so, Father, I pray uh, that you would do that work even in our midst today, in our setting here in Liberty, Missouri, in the Northland of Kansas City. I pray that we would um, lean into the message this morning, that we would not just be hearers of your word and, and stop, but we would move on, Father, to be doers of your word as well. And so, uh, Father, we pray to that end and do that work in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to look at uh, John uh, chapter number two this morning. I'm thankful for um, Dave Welch and his summary and reminders of the ground that we covered um, even last week as we looked at Christ's first earthly miracle. And we reminded ourselves um, of some really incredible truths. But more importantly, I really appreciated how Dave approached the passage of reminding us what the passage was about and what it was not about, right? As you remember, Dave made the comment that this passage is not about whether we can drink wine or not. But rather, it's about the person and work of Jesus Christ as Jeff Campbell laid out in chapter 1 in our intro to the Gospel of John. And so I want to remind us of that reality even yet this morning on a familiar passage of Scripture where we see Jesus cleansing the temple in verses 13 through the end of the chapter. I want to remind us this passage is not about whether I can justify my anger or not in certain situations. Righteous indignation. That's not the point. Right, the point about is exactly what Andy Herman reminded us this morning was the whole point of the Gospel of John. And if we look forward to John chapter 20, verses 31, we were reminded that why did John write his book? So that we would what? Know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we may have what? Life. And so this is the point, this is the grid that we need to sift every passage, every chapter, every word of the Gospel of John through. It's about knowing and understanding the person and work of Jesus Christ. Being able to recognize Jesus as who He really is, the Son of God. And as a result of recognizing Him rightly, we respond rightly in what? Faith. And so this is the process by which we are approaching the Gospel of John. And before we dive into the deep end of our text this morning, I want to remind us also of some great resources that we are attempting by God's grace to make more readily available. And that is uh, our revamped website. I hope you've visited it. I hope you've uh, read the content. But more importantly, I hope you're on a regular basis now visiting the recorded sermons after one is preached and we're having application come into our heart and minds, we can revisit that throughout the week and listen to it again. 
and maybe a second time and a third time. And we can start reminding ourselves of the truths of Scripture so we can start living it out past Sunday, right? And it doesn't stop when Monday hits around and we start our jobs and we go to our meeting and we have that uh, client meeting and we go here, we go there, and we forget. Our, our minds just, quite frankly, forget. And so that resource of the website and the recorded sermons are to help us accomplish our purpose of what? Making mature followers of Christ to the glory of God. It is a tool, a resource that will aid you in your maturing process of your knowledge of the Lord. And the second resource that we want to remind on that website is not just recorded sermons, but again, by God's grace, we're going to be able to produce content and blogs and different resources that we can draw your attention to that will help give further insight and equipping around certain topics. And Jeff Campa did that for us yesterday evening, uh, posted our, our first official blog post. Dave Welch has... Uh, some older material that he put into a blog post, but Jeff has a fresh blog post of why we've landed in the Gospel of John. And I would challenge you, if you have not gone to and read it, please do. I thank you, Jeff, for putting that together. And the whole point of it is that it's all connected. This isn't just hold our finger up to the wind and say, yeah, John sounds good, right? Let's go there, right? There's intentionality and purpose and meaning behind landing in the Gospel of John because if we reverse engineer this, We're in John. Why? Because we have a purpose statement of Liberty Hills to make mature followers of Christ to the glory of God, which, again, let's reverse it one more time, is rooted and grounded in what? The Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19, and 20, to go and make disciples and baptize. And then he says, and then what? Teach them all things I have commanded you. And so it goes full circle in the context of the culture of discipleship that we're praying the Lord would allow us to experience now and in the days ahead. It comes full circle. How do we teach them what Christ has commanded us? We've got to know what Christ has commanded us. What better place to do that than the gospel of John that records the person and work of Jesus Christ? So are you tracking our method to our madness, if you will, of why we're in John and the importance and it's an intentionality and it's relevance to your life at Liberty Hills and in the spheres of influence that God has placed you to live out your faith, and to be the hands and feet of Christ as Liberty Hills Bible Church. And so I hope you're tracking with this in that reality. And so we find ourselves in John chapter number 2. Let's pick up in reading verse number 12, actually, to just give us one verse of context, and then we'll we'll hop into this here. John chapter 2, verse number 12, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. 
but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But, verse 24, Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. Here we have Jesus and this, again, familiar passage of Jesus cleansing the temple This morning, we're going to look at a big idea and three points and bring in some application. The big idea this morning of John chapter number two in our passage is this. Because Jesus is the Christ, because he is the son of God, he ultimately has the only authority to cleanse and to restore that which has been broken. Okay, I'm going to say that one more time. I want us to get the big idea of this passage. I don't want us to get distracted and lost about all these other ancillary things that you may be able to read into this passage. We want to be true to the text. The big idea, our takeaway from this text is this, because Jesus is the Christ, because he is the Son of God, he ultimately has the only authority to cleanse and to restore that which has been broken. So the first point we're going to look at this morning is, This, the state that Jesus found the temple was unacceptable. The state that Jesus found the temple was unacceptable. I want to give us by way of introduction to this first point is to bring us up to speed in this cultural element of the Passover feast. So Jesus, his mother, his brothers, his disciples, they were in Capernaum for a few days. We don't know how long that means, but then they went down to Jerusalem for a purpose, right? There was the Passover that was taking place, and Jews from all over the region and area would be uh, having a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to to recognize this this Passover, right? And they're going there for a purpose and a reason, right? It's to present a sacrifice at the temple that's in Jerusalem, right? And instead of taking all their livestock and their birds and their pigeons and and their turtle doves and oxen and sheep, instead of traveling long distances with all these livestock and animals and having to feed them along the way and even risking potentially them not making it or getting attacked from other animals. They have, it was a common practice to what? To wait until they actually got to Jerusalem before they what? Purchased their animals for sacrifice. And so uh, instead of these uh, transactions happening close to Jerusalem or within the city limits, they've navigated closer and closer to the temple and actually have made their way inside the temple of God. And so we have uh, transactions. Uh, We have money being exchanged. We have animals being purchased inside the temple. Um, From a money perspective, Christ talks about uh, turning over the money changers, right? Uh, This area was under what? Roman control. And so they would have Roman currency and coinage. And to follow the law of of Scripture at, at the Passover, they were to pay a temple tax, or a temple offering, and they were to present that half shekel, uh, which is a Jewish currency. And so they would take their Roman currency that they would have, and they would have to exchange that to get that half shekel that they would present as the temple tax. This is why this stuff was happening. And it wasn't necessarily, uh, probably originally had poor motives. It was really a matter of convenience. We've got the Passover happening 
Jews from all over the region are going to be traveling. They don't want to take their animals with them. You probably have concern about, hey, am I going to get robbed on the way? Let's just keep my money tied. And when I get there, I'll do the exchange. I'll get the right money. I'll do my temple tax. I'll, I'll have my pigeons. I'll have my turtle doves. I'll have my sheep or oxen. And we'll be good to go. And I'll be able to present my sacrifice. One is a sacrifice for sin. The other, a burnt offering to the Lord. And we'll be good to go, right? It sounds like a pretty good plan that they had in place. But unfortunately... We know that sin nature likes to take advantage even of our best intentions. And the process by which these transactions were taking place inside the temple, they were exploiting this Passover. They were exploiting the faithfulness of God's people, and they were ultimately experiencing personal gain on the behalf of the Lord. People would come in and exchange their Roman currency for their Jewish half shekel and they would charge an exuberant amount of uh, exchange uh, fee for that. Uh, the poor and the poor man's sacrifice would have been that of the pigeon and the dove. And here we have those pigeons and those doves being bought for a fee. There was personal gain that was uh, on behalf of the work of the Lord and the worship of the Lord. So Christ comes to this temple and he observes and he finds the state of this temple was Horribly unacceptable. Why? Why was the temple in an unacceptable state? It's because the temple was being used for purposes outside the original scope and intent that it was created for. What is the Passover? Why were they coming? What was this Passover feast? What was this time for for the Jewish people? What were they to be recognized and acknowledging and and remembering? Was it not that they were to be remembering God's judgment on the enemies of Israel? And were they not to be remembering and recalling and focusing on the faithfulness of God to deliver the nation of Israel? This is what they would have been thinking about, what they would have been remembering about who their God is and as a result, what He's done on their behalf. And instead of the focus being on the worship of God and His character and who He is and what He's accomplished on their behalf, there are people exploiting and taking advantage of that for their own gain. So this temple was being used outside of God's plan and purpose. I don't know if you know much about how the temple is is set up, but just by way, again, of introduction and context to help you get your mind uh, maybe around this, we have the Jerusalem temple. Uh, it, it sits on what we now call in, in, in Jerusalem the Temple Mount. Uh, it's an area that expands literally uh, almost 35 acres of ground. So this is a large area. This is a big, I mean, that's, think about 35 acres. That, that's a big deal, right? And so we're not talking about just a little tent here. We're talking about a substantial structure. This is uh, the footprint, if you will, of the temple there in Jerusalem. Only priests could enter into the temple itself. It took up uh, uh, as a percentage, if you will, or in relation to the rest of the footprint, a pretty small part of this temple mount. It was surrounded by three courts, right? You had the first court, the Israelite men could enter into the closest court to the temple. Israelite men and women could occupy the next court. But then you had the court of what? The Gentiles, which was the court farthest from the temple. This was the closest any non-Jew could get to the sanctuary, if you will. And so you have all of this money changing, this exploitation for personal gain 
happening in this court of the Gentiles. It should have been a place of prayer. There should have been a place of worship. There should have been a place of remembering who God was and what He had done for them on their behalf. And instead, there was the hustle and bustle of commerce and, and money being changed and, and livestock being purchased and exploitation of the poor and needy for personal gain. There was injustices happening here. There's injustice happening here. And when Christ saw that, he, he, he acknowledged it as what? Unacceptable. Secondly, we're going to look at this truth that Jesus takes. What was his action? Not only do we see the state that Jesus found the temple was unacceptable, but secondly, Jesus takes immediate action and drastic measures to what? Cleanse the temple of this wrongdoing. Let me say that again. Did you get it? Jesus takes immediate action and drastic measures to cleanse the temple of this wrongdoing. Let's read verses 15 and 16 to get our our mind wrapped around that reality. He goes in and the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Verse 15, and making a whip of cords... He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons. I don't know why he pointed out those who sold the pigeons. I think it's because, again, speculation here. I think it's because what the, the sacrifice of the pigeon represented the sacrifice of the commoner. Those who had little means. And so he was even more concerned about the injustice and the exploitation of those that were poor and needy and desiring to be faithful to God. And so he calls out those who were what selling the pigeons. And what does he say to him? He says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And verse 17, we'll read on his disciples remembered that it was written zeal for your house will consume me. Verse 17, the disciples were remembering back in Psalm 69, verse number 9. This is a direct quotation that uh, the, the New Testament uses of the Old Testament, where it's this exact quote, zeal for your house will consume me. And that Psalm 69, right, was a psalm of, of David, right? It was a, a picture of a pre-Christ, one who, who would foreshadow the things to come, right? And so we have David being consumed with what the integrity of, of, of the house of God. And then we get, when Christ comes on the scene, right? He is the better David, the better Adam. And, and he even takes it to another level. He's the one that is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy and scripture. The one who can make all things right. The one who has the authority and the ability and the right to cleanse and to restore that which has been broken. This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so we have Jesus taking immediate action and drastic measures to cleanse the temple of this wrongdoing. Friends, what does this look like from an application perspective? Again, we don't have the temple. I'm thankful because of Christ's death on the cross and because his shed blood and there's forgiveness of sins because of his death, burial, and his resurrection that, that, uh, that uh, curtain is torn in two, right? And we no longer need the shed blood of animals. We no longer need a priest. Uh, to make intercession on our behalf, but because of Christ, we can go boldly before the throne of grace, and we have now the priesthood of what? The believer. We have a personal access through Christ to the Father. Is that beautiful? Are you thankful for that? I am. 
And so what does this look like then for us today? We don't have a temple. We can't, we're not taking advantage of, of what's going on as far as the worship and, and the sacrifice. But let's take it, let's take it in our context. We know what it meant for them. What does it mean for us today? I think we have to come to the conclusion that God takes very seriously the integrity of his worship. God takes very seriously the integrity of his worship. So what does that mean for us today? What do we do when we come together in the gathering? Our desires to what? To worship God, right? So should we be concerned at Liberty Hills Bible Church about the integrity of our worship before the Lord? Should we be concerned about the integrity of that we're getting it right? That there's no uh, hint of self, that there's no personal gain, that there's no advancement of my reputation or my status as a result of the church coming together to gather to worship the Lord? Should we be concerned about the integrity of our worship? Absolutely. So that's from a corporate perspective. Friends, what does it look like at an individual level? As the individual coming to offer this uh, worship of myself, right? The Romans 12, 1 and 2. Right? To present your bodies a what living sacrifice. This is now because of Christ. We don't just go and offer a one-time sacrifice and then come back. No, our life is a sacrifice. Our life, it is our spiritual worship. Romans 12, 1 and 2 tells us. So what does it look like at an individual level to take the application, the focus of what we know about the character of God and how he takes it very seriously here in chapter 2 of John? What does it look like for us to prepare our hearts for worship? To be confronted with the reality that Jesus takes drastic measures and immediate action to cleanse this temple from wrongdoing. Does Christ not demonstrate here a high premium on the holiness and character of God? Does Christ not here demonstrate that Christ is, or excuse me, God is holy, Christ is holy, the Holy Spirit is obviously holy? And as a result, when we come to worship Him, we too must be what? Holy, be holy for I am holy. Friends, this thing that we call church is so many times such an afterthought in our minds and in our day. How much this morning did you even think about preparing your heart as we came together and as Andy led us in worship to sing these incredible truths about the character and work of our God? How much did you think about, am I, is my heart ready to sing? Is my family ready to worship? Should we not take this demonstration of worship that we are designed corporately but individually to offer to the Lord? Should we not take it very seriously? I think the question is, yes, we should. So friends, that's what I'm thankful for us as elders going through this process right now of doing what? Examining everything we are doing and ensuring that it is best and most, what? Biblical. And if it's not best and most biblical, why should we settle for it? I shouldn't because the Lord is holy and he deserves our best and he deserves excellence in our own personal lives and corporately as a ministry, he deserves excellence. And so as we look at this gospel of John, as we look at how, how uh, the sense of urgency that Christ brings to securing and protecting the integrity of the worship of God, I think we have to pause and just stop and consider is that our mindset. Do we have the same urgency and intentionality and purpose that Christ has in protecting the integrity of the worship of God? And how do we do that, friends? We do that by repentance. Repentance is what? The change of mind and a change of heart that results in a change of 
action. Again, repentance is the change of mind that results in a change of heart that results in what? A change of action. Repentance is the fertile ground that God can use to plant the seed of his word and his truth and the realities of the character of God so they can take root and grow in our life. And it's interesting as we go on through the story, we see a lack of repentance from those that were changing money. We see a lack of repentance from those who were exploiting for personal gain inside the footprint of the temple. We need to rid ourselves, friends, of the sin that we can justify. I'm sure maybe the first time they set up a table in the temple, they never thought it would grow and become what it was at the time that Christ walked into this temple. But friends, is that not how sin deceives us? Our heart's deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Can we not justify what we're doing? Can we not justify our actions? You know, look, I'm providing a a convenient service here. I'm I'm just making animals available for people coming in to sacrifice. That's a good thing, right? We need animals to sacrifice to the Lord. Can we not get into this mindset that, hey, look, you know what? The Roman money needs to be exchanged into what the Jewish half shekel. So look, you know, I'm just, that's just what I'm doing. I'm just providing a service. But yet there's this hidden agenda, there's personal gain, there's exploitation, there's injustices, there's wrongdoing that was justified in the temple and the end justified the means in the minds of many of these people that were involved in these actions. And friends, Christ is exposing the fallacy. He's exposing the mindset and the heart of what that really looks like. The state of the temple, as Jesus found it, was unacceptable. And who knows how long they were operating under that status quo of, look, come on into the temple. We'll get you set up with the sacrifice. We'll get your money changed and you go do your thing and we're good to go. Who knows how long they were operating that state? Jesus walks in the first time he sees it. It's unacceptable because he saw it for what it really is. And we have insight at the end of the chapter because how did Jesus know that? He saw hearts. He saw people and he knows people. And so Jesus saw right through the smoke and mirrors of them justifying their actions that were wrong and sinful. And he went straight to their heart. And he drove the sin. He cleansed the temple and made it once again a a place of worship. So friends, I wonder what do we need to repent of in our own lives that we're kidding ourselves, we're deceiving ourselves, we're justifying, minimizing in our own life that we're using for personal gain, or that is just out of priority, that we're using in a way that it wasn't intended for. So friends, here we've got it. The state that Jesus found the temple was unacceptable. Jesus takes immediate action and drastic measures to cleanse the temple of this wrongdoing. Thirdly, we see the response to Jesus's actions varied on the basis of who they believed him to be. Okay, let's let's think about that one more time. The response to Jesus's actions varied on the basis of who they believed him to be. Again, what's the big idea of this passage? Because Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, he has the only authority to cleanse and restore that which is broken. But not everybody believed he was what? The Christ, the son of God. So do we not see some very stark contrasts in this passage in regards to how they responded to Jesus' actions? All right, let's pick up at verse 17. We're going to see the disciples' response to Jesus' action of cleansing the temple. 
says this, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The, the disciples' response was based on what? Remembrance. They were looking for, as Dave Welch reminded us this morning, the disciples were looking for this Messiah. And when they found him, they had an initial faith, a belief, as John the Baptist had been uh, declaring in the wilderness. And when John the Baptist identified this Christ as the one who we had prophesied about, they left John the Baptist again kind of in the dust, and they immediately what followed him. They immediately followed him. There's an immediate demonstration of faith in the person and will be the work of Christ. Right? And we saw chapter 1, the, the identity of Christ being revealed in the beginning part of, of chapter 2 through this first, not public, but literally private miracle that was put on display for the benefit of who solely? The disciples. So they could continue to increase in their understanding of faith in not only just the person of Christ, but now the work of Christ validated who they believed Christ to be. Right? And so this element of growing faith. The disciples had faith. They were able to recall the truth of Scripture. Their faith was based on what they saw, what they heard, and who they knew Christ to be, but ultimately was based on the truth of Scripture. They're quoting the Old Testament passage, thinking of Christ and how He's fulfilling this Old Testament Scripture. Zeal for your house will consume me. So they're saying, we talked about in the Old Testament, and oh my goodness, I'm seeing it right before me. I'm seeing zeal for the house of the Lord personified. It's come alive. This is Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. Just as the Old Testament has talked about. And what did that do to the disciples' faith that grew it? It strengthened it. We saw another layer of confidence that they were going to need in the days ahead to follow Christ to the end. And so we see this stark contrast to the disciples' faith and remembrance and recall of Scripture. We now see the Jews. Verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? What a proud, arrogant Inappropriate question to ask Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, who has the only authority to cleanse and to restore that which is broken. These Jews in the midst of knowing Old Testament Scripture, these Jews in the midst of being confronted face to face, eyeball to eyeball with the Messiah, did not recognize Him in His true identity as the Messiah. And in their arrogance, in their pride, in their darkened hearts and minds, they demanded a sign as retribution for this display of driving out these money changers. What was Christ's response? What was Christ's response? Verse 19, read with me. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Why do you think Jesus used almost this parable-type language to respond back to these Jews that were clearly not in a state to receive truth, but rather in their own arrogance and pride just wanted retribution. They wanted something in return for what had happened. Why do you think Christ uses this type of language? Language. Well, he goes on to verse 20. He says, 
The, the Jews clearly didn't understand what Christ had said. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? Verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And when they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken, friends, it doesn't say here that Christ had this little side powwow with the disciples again and said, hey, this is what I mean. I'm responding to the Jews. I'm saying, hey, destroy this body in three days. I'll raise it up. Did the disciples get what Christ was saying there? Did they? Look at it. You tell me. It says this, verse 22, When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. So when did it all click? After his resurrection. So the disciples didn't get it, right? They didn't get it. But as they're connecting the dots here, what was the end result? What was the product of of them remembering and recalling the life and the work, the personal work of, of Jesus? They're remembering the situation when Christ was in the temple and he drove it out. This ungodliness and this wrongdoing and these injustices when he drove it out of the temple and Christ responded to the Jews this way, destroy this temple and on three days I will raise it up. At some point after the resurrection, the disciples finally, everything came together. The dots were connected. The puzzle pieces came together and they got the full picture of who Christ is, why he came. That's beautiful. As we look at this cleansing of the temple here in John chapter 2, there's... There's something unique about John's account of this, right? I mean, when you look at what we call the synoptic gospels, which are what Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right? That's the the three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. They call them that. Why? Because they kind of have the same basically chronological order and they align, a lot of overlap. Uh, Those three gospels actually don't have this account of Christ cleansing the temple at the beginning. Those three have a second account of Jesus cleansing the temple. When? When did, what was the second time Jesus did this? During the Passion Week, right? When he came back into Jerusalem again. You guys remember this, right? It's, it's there in, I think, Luke 21 or something like that. There's a, another account in the Matthew, Mark, and Luke of a second cleansing of the temple. So let's think about this. Cleansing of the temple literally bookends Christ's earthly ministry. At the very beginning, or near the very beginning of Christ's earthly ministry, he comes into Jerusalem for the Passover. What does he do? He immediately goes to the temple and he cleanses it. At the end of his earthly ministry, he comes back into Jerusalem for the Passover. He goes into the temple. What does he do? He cleanses it. He drives it out. Friends, this is very important to Christ. And as John gives us an account on the person and work of Jesus Christ, we've got to see the nuances here. We've got to understand the mind of Christ and how he's working. Because he responds to the Jews in this almost parable-like language where he's almost hiding the truth of his response because they could not understand it. And even his disciples at that point weren't ready to receive that truth and that reality. And so the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. Again, verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Let's read on verse 23 to finish out the passage. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name, 
when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. This is, Andy, I think some of the nuance that you're bringing out this morning, right? As far as growing faith, genuine faith, real faith. There were a lot of people that heard the buzz of Jesus. were coming to see and to hear and believe that, man, there's something unique about Christ. We've never heard teaching like this. We've never seen somebody who had this type of power to do these types of things. We never have seen somebody come into the temple and claiming, literally taking a claim of authority on the temple as a result of his actions. That was almost offensive. Those actions that Christ made were a direct offense to the religious elite of the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees of his day. He was saying, I alone have authority. I someday will make this temple that has value and purpose for a few short more years, but I'm going to render the temple what? Irrelevant for the life of the believer because through Christ you can have access to the throne of grace, to God the Father. And so all this thing that you think you're building, that you're trying to control, that you've got all this commerce, personal grain, these things that you're exploiting for, for your own purposes, that's, a, that's creating all this type of injustice in the world, I'm going to tear it down. I'm going to render it irrelevant because you have your identity in this temple and you can't even recognize me as the Christ, the Son of God. And so the response to Jesus' actions absolutely varied. Christ knew that he couldn't entrust the truth of his identity as the Son of God, as the Messiah to everyone that followed. Because why? Why? Because we read on, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Verse 25, and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. You see, Christ sees whether our faith is a fake, whether it's a phony, whether we're just falling along with the buzz of, hey, this is what I do. On Sunday morning, I just kind of like this group of people, so I'm going to come and be a part of something. Or whether he really sees true, authentic, genuine faith as he was seen developed in the disciples at the wedding of Cana. As we were seeing it fostered, as they were connecting the dots of what they knew to be true about this Messiah in the Old Testament, as they were starting to see in these simple acts and encounters with Christ, they were seeing Scripture come alive off of the pages because they were able to identify Christ correctly as the Christ, the Son of God. And as a result, their response was what? Belief. And as belief, they started to experience this life that they never saw before. It started to grow and come alive within them. They started to develop relationships with each other and with this Christ, the Messiah, like they never thought possible. There was a life starting to take root and grow in their hearts. And it was a result of faith. It was a result of belief. It was a result of confidence that Jesus is who He said He was. He always will be. And we can place our confidence and faith and trust in that reality. Because friends, at the end of the day, Christ is worth it. And that's what we see in, in contrast here. I could set up shop in the temple. I could exchange some Roman coins for some Jewish coins and I could take a cut for myself. I could set up shop and I could get a, a emerging budding business within the court of the Gentiles. I could sell some pigeons and some turtle doves and some oxen and some sheep. I could make a good living for myself. 
Or I could believe Jesus. Or I could be done with myself. I could be done with what my desires are and I could follow Christ. I mean, Christ was just exposing the ugliness of how we pervert and distort what God meant for good. How man, when we get in our, our hands on it, we just, we just make it ugly. We just make it about ourselves. And that's what this beautiful thing that was the temple in Jerusalem was. It was just unacceptable. And it was full of sin and personal gain and ugliness. And Christ, because he had the only authority as the Son of God to cleanse. And ultimately, the second phrase of our big idea is to restore that which had been broken. What was the whole point of the temple? Was to establish what relationship with God, with his, what, who, people. Thank you. I mean, I threw you a softball and it took a while. Finally bid on it. Thanks, Lisa. Right? Is that what the purpose of the temple was? To, to show and demonstrate the relationship that God has with his, with his chosen people. We're created for relationship with God. Friends, do we believe the doctrine of the Imago Dei? That we are creating the image of God going back to the Garden of Eden? God created man and woman, what? To be in fellowship not only together, but with God. To walk with Him, to know Him, to be in intimate relationship and fellowship with God. To know Him and to grow with Him and have intimate relationship with God. And so that was the whole point of the temple, Right? And so Christ is coming to restore that which was broken. Man broke the temple. And he exposed that in this passage in John chapter number 2. And he wants to restore that. He's seeking to not just restore the integrity of worship, but he's seeking to, to uh, restore the integrity of relationship of God with his people through Christ himself. That's why he says later in this book, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No way it comes to who? The Father but by me, Christ said. And so he's, he's showing that he is the bridge. And he's going to develop that and show that and reveal that layer upon layer as we journey through this gospel of John. He's going to establish himself as the way to get to the Father through Christ. And if you can't recognize and respond to Christ correctly and rightly in faith, Saying, I've got nothing to offer. I've got nothing to give. Simply a beggar in need of grace and mercy. I'm a sinner that's in need of saving. I'm sick in need of a physician. I'm lost in need to be found. Until we can come to that type of childlike faith, our relationship with God can't be restored. And so here, in Jesus cleansing the temple in John chapter number two, early in his ministry, friends, he's establishing this foundation of authority. He's establishing this foundation of integrity of worship. He's establishing this foundation of the premium, the priority of rightly relating to God through himself. And we have to come to the, this conclusion, the only conclusion, this big idea of the passage that because the state that Jesus found the temple was unacceptable, and because Jesus took immediate action and drastic measures to cleanse the temple of this wrongdoing, and because the responses to Jesus' actions varied on the basis of who they believed him to be, some in faith and some in skepticism and fellowship only, we have to come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Christ. 
the Son of God, because it's testified of old in the Old Testament, because the disciples believed and demonstrated that and saw that in, in Psalm 69. We have to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and he has authority to cleanse. He has authority to forgive. He has authority to restore that which has been broken. And friends, the application as we finish this, this morning is Christ, on the basis of that authority displayed in John 2, wants to restore our greatest need. And that is our relationship with God. I wonder this morning, friends, I don't know, are you in that court of the Gentiles going through the motions of some religious experience? We've been exposed to the identity and the personal work of Jesus Christ in John 2. Have you ever really rightly responded to Jesus Christ in true, just simple, childlike faith? of saying, Christ, yes, I believe that you do have authority. I believe that you are the Christ, that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by him. Have you ever done that? Do you know Jesus Christ in that type of way? Because it's beautiful to see the story of redemption, the story of faith unfolding in the life of the disciples. Chapter upon chapter, layer upon layer, we see the beautiful bloom of the disciples' faith just get more beautiful and beautiful at every turn in this book. And so friends, we're going to continue to see more about the personal work of Christ and the response that we need to have of simple faith to the personal work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that you are holy, that you are, you are right, you are good. Father, I thank you that you demand holiness from your people, but I'm thankful today, this morning, Father, that's not up to me because I would be a a complete failure. But I thank you that through grace and mercy, that there's this great exchange. Father, you taking my unrighteousness off of me and you giving me these clothes of perfect righteousness in Christ, that through Christ I'm made whole, I'm made right. Father, I thank you that even as Christ has Uh, given us a glimpse of how seriously he takes injustices and exploitation and wrongdoing that someday Christ will come once and for all and make all wrongs right. That's, there's so much hope there, Father. So I pray that we would lean into John chapter number two and we would be reminded of, of who you are and your authority over our life. And I pray that our response would be that of the disciples emerging and growing faith that we see here in the Gospel of John, that we would, again, afresh and anew, start to respond to you and identify you and recognize you correctly as the Christ, the Son of God. And as a result of believing, we would have life. Father, I don't know where everybody's at here this morning, where they're coming from, family situations, circumstances in life, in their job. I, Father, I just, I just know that there's some here myself included at times, that it just doesn't feel like I'm experiencing life. You've come to give us life and that we would have it more abundantly. Let us not believe the thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And so if there's somebody here this morning, Father, that doesn't know you or isn't experiencing this abundant life that you came to promise, I pray that they would take a step this morning of just looking at their own life and their own heart and considering, what do I need to repent of? What do I need to, uh, by the grace of God, confess? And as a result of the grace and mercy of Christ, that 
He would cleanse our own hearts and our minds afresh and new that we could respond rightly to who Christ is and as a result live for him. So, Father, I pray that you would do that work. Ask all these things in your precious and holy name, Jesus Christ.